that some that the message that pastors bringing, Lord, that we can get something that we chew on this week, Father, that we can just hold it and, and put it in our hearts, Lord, and live it. Father, as we hear the Ephesians 6 through 10, Lord, this is a powerful verses, Lord, and I, I pray, Lord, that we can deliver it and stand there before the devil, Lord, and just and have all of our guards on and, and be able to stand with them. Father, we ask you, Lord, to be with the pastor as he brings the message and keep us safe as we go home today and be with this weather, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Ronnie, let me get your name out, right? Yeah, I just renamed you on the way up. You're, you're welcome. Um, well, it's good to see everybody here this morning. Let me uh, remind you, if you happen to come in a little late, uh, just uh, something that's very important in the life and body of our church is coming up in the, in the next two weeks. On uh, two Sundays from now, on January 28th, we'll be having a church-wide fellowship immediately following our church service, including a church conference that is a business meeting in which we'll do among other things, reviewing our budget together to discuss our budget. We want to talk about vision for the future, both immediately in, the, in 2024 and, and looking as we go beyond 2024, including uh, in the health of our own body here locally, as well as missions and what we're going to look to in missions work that we're doing as well. So just let me just encourage you, if you can, I, I realize trying to make plans and a lot of things come up, start praying your kids stay well. I know how that goes. Um, you know, uh, start praying. We all stay well together. Pray the weather works out well for us on that day to come and fellowship. Make sure we all sign up so there's plenty of food in the back. Not in the back. Sign up in the back. We want the food to be downstairs when we go eat together. But uh, we want to do that together as a body as we look um, to 2024 and beyond uh, for the future and healthiness of our church to continue to advance the gospel and exalt Christ, that God be glorified by us and use us to build others to glorify God as well. One thing we want to take and pause before today's sermon is a reminder, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a day in which we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, and, and actually this year it happens to fall exactly on his birthday, January 15th. We celebrate, and it's our way of honoring his contribution to our country, particular in, particularly in the area of civil rights, and the condemnation and eradication that we desire of racism. You know, it's a fairly recent holiday in our, in our national identity. Uh, it was approved as a holiday on November 2nd of 1983 and not first recognized federally until January 20th of 86, of 1986. It went so long as into the year 2000 before actually all 50 states got on the same page and celebrated it on the same day. Uh, and that didn't happen now, I mean, until the year 2000. So it took quite some time for us as a nation. But now we remember, and I think for many of us, probably the, the definitive speech is the I Have a Dream speech that uh, Dr. King delivered on August 28, 1963, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And I still remember visiting Washington, D.C. as Dion and I stood there on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial looked over the mall, the, the great uh, water feature that's there, and then later as we walked over to visit the, the monument now given to Dr. King and his work. You know, in that speech, Dr. King makes a simple but deeply gripping confession, proclamation, and desire when he says that he dreams of the day that, as, and I'll quote his words, that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. To which I think we as a body can say amen. Because as Christians, we should never judge one by the color of their skin. This dream and Dr. King's actions to bring it about were driven by his commitment to quote his own writing, to the deepest principles of our Christian faith. Under his leadership, the civil rights movement was nonviolent. Dr. King guided people not to respond to violence with violence, not to respond to hatred with hatred, but rather, and to quote him again, that our actions must be guided by the deepest principles of our Christian faith, 
Love must be our regulating ideal. It is my prayer as the lead preaching and teaching pastor here, as well as us as an elder body, that these commitments to repudiate racism and to embrace equality and justice for all and to live by the deepest principles of our Christian faith will control and guide us that the love of Christ will compel us. And that will be continued to live out by us here, specifically in our body at the Hills Church. That we would be known as a people that live for our Lord and hate racism because of who we are. As Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote in Galatians 3, 27 through 29, he says we are all one in Christ. He, he wrote, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither. Now, now hear, hear the criteria for our oneness. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one. Why? In Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ and we are, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. See, the very foundation of our identity for every one of us is who we are in Christ. And so when we look at each other, we don't look and judge based on the color of our skin. We look at each other and we say, thank God that he did not judge us because of our sin but rather we stand together one in Christ. I pray that the work of the Spirit among us may maintain our unity in the bond of peace so that racism would never be named among us. May God work in our nation so that our children, our children's children, our children's children's children will not know of racism by experience, but only because they read of a time in the past when there was such a sin called racism. Let me pray for us. Father, I just pray this morning as a body as we, we seek to honor one who is a common man like us and Dr. King, and as he sought to say, let us live up to the ideals that our nation proclaims, but Father, how much more he rightfully says, let us live up to the ideals that our Lord demands of us because we are followers of Christ. And so, Father, I pray, let our body never have a hint of racism among it. For, Father, we do not want to be known as a people divided, but a people unified, because we are those that seriously follow our Lord. God, we do this for his great glory and our great good, and we pray that it may be so among us. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, some of you uh, may remember the, the movie or the series of movies based on The Matrix. You may remember the original movie, The Matrix, in, in which Neo, the, the lead character, is faced with a decision in which the character Morpheus says, you have to take a pill. You can take a red pill or you can take a blue pill. And Morpheus puts it this way. He says, if you take the blue pill... The story ends. You wake up in your bed, believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, and you stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. For those of you who have seen the movie, the whole crux of the pill taking is whether or not Neo will choose to take the blue pill and choose to believe whatever he wants to believe about reality or he takes the red pill, which is to say, I want to know how things truly are. And of course, in order to make the series, you have to take the red pill. But that's not how it works in reality. Neo takes the red pill, and he sees what reality really is. It's a world controlled by, seems appropriate in this day and age, artificial intelligence of machines. And the human race is, has been subjugated to these machines, and now he sees what it really is, and he realizes there's a war at hand. Here's the basic reality. Reality changes the weapons of our warfare. 
If you chose, or if Neo chose to take the blue pill, there's no war at hand, and what he fights is what he thinks is a very different war. But if he took the red pill, and he did, now the real war is at hand, and he realizes, I am fighting something greater than I even understood, and the weapons of the war, war have changed. I want to propose to you, that's what Paul says to us again in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. We can choose in our own way to ignore the real war at hand. Uh, to, to build on the metaphor of the matrix, to choose to believe whatever we want to believe, to go to sleep and try to find comfort in our own beds, ignore reality as it really is, and see if we can find our comfort and satisfaction there. Or, as Paul would present it to us, we can know what is truly at hand, that a war is truly going on, and see just how deeply it goes, and choose to be in it, and fight in it. As Christians, though this is not the only controlling analogy or metaphor that is used in the Bible, this is one of the primary to understand our Christian life. We are at war. If you haven't already, turn over to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. And today, what I, I want us to take on as we look at this passage is to see this concept of the whole armor of God, that we are at war, what the whole armor of God, God is in its very purpose. And so today as we look at this, I, I want to build and understand what the logic of the passage is. And then from that, to understand why are we given these weapons of warfare and what they are. So if you're looking there in Ephesians chapter 6, reading in verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Now, here's the basic logic, or you might say syllogism of the passage. What, what, is, what do I see going on here, and, and what I think Paul is trying to, to present to us, to say, why in the world do you need these weapons of war? The first thing is, the war we are in is spiritual, not physical. It's probably patently obvious when you read it, but you can see Paul is not arguing that we're primarily in a physical warfare. He's actually saying you're in a spiritual warfare. Like if you think the only issue at hand is the physical realities and overcoming what you see, you've misunderstood the war that is at hand. And he says, so the war we are in is spiritual, not physical. Therefore, so there's a, there's a logical implication to that about the warfare. The way we wage war is spiritual. The primary way in which we wage war is not a physical exercise. Now, let me just say as an aside, I realize there are realities, and I'm not arguing against physical warfare, There's, and I could, we could get into what's called just war theory and, and other sermons and such later. There is a reason why there are wars physically, and it's actually undergirded because of what's going on in the spiritual realm. And so, yes, we have to wage war in the physical realm, but the real war, the ultimate war, is a spiritual one. And so Paul says, if you're in a spiritual war, you have to use spiritual weapons. That's the basic idea. Thus, we need armament, that is battle gear or weapons, designed for this spiritual war if we are to stand victorious. Right? I still remember... When I was in, in high school, um, my 10th grade history teacher was illustrating the Spanish-American uh, War, and she was explaining to us how the Americans were able to defeat the Spanish, particularly in the Philippines, it was going on because they had superior weaponry, and what that weaponry at the time was is they had cannons, so they could launch their artillery farther than the Spaniards could, and so what, what the Americans would do is they'd back off get far enough away, and then they would just lob stuff at them. You know? And the way she illustrated this in class, and I still remember to this day, 
Well, she got me in front of the class, and, and my 10th grade history teacher probably stood about 5'2"-ish or so, and she said, Tommy, come here. Come here. Okay. Come to, come to the front of the class. And uh, she did not allow, to, allow me to hit her, but what she did allow me to do, she said, I want you to take, my, take your arm and put it straight out on my forehead. And that's what I did. I put it on her forehead. And then, uh, now Dr. Montgomery, she was Miss Montgomery, but Dr. Montgomery then decided to full force swing at me. And she just started taking, just giving uh, haymakers at me. They were about a foot short. They were landing about right here, right? Because the weaponry she was using to try, if we got in a fight, I would have just done this. And she, you know, trust me, I didn't do this. I could have done this, right? Because my weaponry was superior to hers. One of the things that, that, that goes on in warfare is if you're, if you're in a war and the weapons you are using are not the right ones to fight your enemy, what are you going to do? You're going to lose. And that's what was happening with Miss Montgomery. You can't use short arms to defeat a longer-armed opponent, right? We know this from boxing matches. That's, they always tell you arm length and other things. But it's a vivid memory to me that, our, that reminds me, if you use inferior weapons, you will lose the war. I still remember to this day, right? So by the way, that's why I like to see in our military uh, community that we have superior weapons. I like living in the country I'm in. I like to keep the country I have, and so it's good. I see that as a grace of God, and, and I realize there's, there's implications of that. But nonetheless, it's a reminder to me. And, and one of the things you have to see is that Paul builds this idea that we are in a war, and he's not just here in Ephesians. He's saying you've got to know that you, you've got to use spiritual weapons because you're in a spiritual war. And he tells us that in early Ephesians, I'll just go through it, I'm going to read some passages quickly to you. He, he speaks of this repeated, repeatedly, as, as does Peter. In, in, in Ephesians 6.12, we've seen that, but in Romans 8.38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. Like He recognizes there's something beyond what you see in front of you, Right? Or Galatians 4.3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, or this, of this world. But there's, there's things in this world that we get enslaved to. There's something more than just what might be physically in front of us. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Now listen to the all things. What are all things? They are visible and invisible. They are, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Very specifically speaking, why does our God know this? He created it all. He's fully aware of what he created. It includes both visible and invisible things. Going on in Colossians in 2.15, it says that he, referring uh, to Christ, how, how he worked, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, which could have a reference to the Greco-Roman and Jewish ruling authorities, but I think we're also seeing that he's talking about there's something greater going on, not just the physical world you see, but the spiritual realm, the rulers and authorities. He goes on in verse 20 of Colossians 2, if with Christ you died to the element, elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Right? There's something going on in the world that we can submit to that's just beyond what we might see in front of us. Peter says that Christ who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God. So the Messiah, Christ, has gone into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, of, of God with angels, authorities, and powers, what? Having been subjected to him. Right? So there's this spiritual realm that Christ rules over. And probably the greatest illustration, just by example, comes out of the Old Testament in the book of Job. If you remember how the story of the book of Job begins, it actually tells the story of how Job came to the attention of Satan. God brought Job to Satan's attention. It literally says that 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 when you look in the book of Job, you look in chapter 1, it's, it's captured in verses 6 through 12. Satan had been roaming about the earth, and he comes before God, and, he, and God says, have you taken notice of my servant Job? And Satan basically says, yeah, 
He's willing to serve you because of how good he has it. Okay, that's not exact Hebrew, that's not a, but that's, that's the idea behind it. You've blessed him, of course he's going to serve you. And God literally tells Satan, he says, you can do anything except for kill him. And, and he unleashes Satan to attack Job. And if you read the story of Job, he loses his family, he loses his wealth, he loses his health. It's all gone. His wife wants to be merciful to him, so she says, you know what? Just curse God. Just get it over with and die. And Job says, nope. God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Could you imagine, I mean, when, the, when, when Satan hears those words, hold a minute, this guy may actually mean it, that he's going to follow this God even when God doesn't give him all the great things of this world. But it illustrates to us, I mean, think if you're in Job's shoes, and some of you may be sitting there today. Why, God, is this happening? Right? Why? I, I, I imagine, I don't know, but I, you look at Job and the extended end of Job and how God talks to Job. By the way, never question if, who God is. He might just tell you, right? Or at least not with the... Job is basically just frustrated to his end and says, you know, basically God tells Job, were you here when I created everything? And Job has to go, well, no, hold a second. And then God begins to teach him who he is. So I, I shouldn't say never question who God is or ask him who he is, but realize he may fully tell you so you're aware of who he is. And sometimes he's going to surprise you. And he tells Job, but could you imagine Job? And, I, and I'm not clear, I don't know with certainty, could you imagine later when Job finds out, hold a minute, you mean I lost my family and my wealth and my health, all that because you wanted to show that I was faithful and that you wanted to show to me who you are? See, some of you may be sitting there and you don't understand why. And Job didn't. I mean, he's sitting there, why, all, why is all this gone? And Job doesn't know. And, and I assume he found out later, because we have the intro to the book of Job. Someone did, because it got written down. But was Job's physical struggle and suffering merely a physical battle? No, the whole reason it came about was why. The real battle was a spiritual one. You see, in this war, our goal, the end game, ultimately is to stand firm. It is to stand firm ultimately in the gospel. That's the end game. Like Job stood firm in serving God, our call is to stand firm in serving our Lord. To stand firm in the gospel that he's given us. That we would not abandon it. Now, that comes from what we saw last week. You'll notice that if that's the end game, as I showed out of Ephesians 6, 11 through 14, where it says over and over, stand, stand firm, withstand, stand, right? Over and over. And then Paul says there at the end of the passage that Brother Ronnie read this morning, ultimately stand firm in the gospel. Pray for me as I, because what do you say? Pray that I'll be bold, that I'll stand firm in, in sharing the gospel. So that's what we want to stand in, but we want to stand firm in the gospel to the end. Right, just, just notice the word, if you're looking back there, there in verse 13 of Ephesians 6, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, to stand against the evil, to withstand the attacks. The picture of the evil day carries with it the idea of this ultimate, of a day that will be faced in which evil will come. Now, the way some interpreters, commentators understand it is it's the ultimate judgment day. But I think Paul is, is not only looking forward to the ultimate day, he's looking, at, and he uses this as kind of a definitive way to say, be ready to stand firm in the day the attack comes upon you. Right? Peter has to prepare the people for this in 1 Peter. The persecution is coming. He knows because he's in the capital under Nero. Peter likely saw, the, the likely reason Peter wrote 
to Asia Minor, to the Gentiles. Remember, Peter was, was actually sent to the Jews, right? Paul's to the Gentile. That was their primary responsibility. Peter writes, you know why Peter likely wrote to those in, in Asia Minor, as is, is, is it's called in modern-day Turkey? Likely because he'd seen the execution of Paul, so he's got to write to them, it is coming your way. It's happening in the capital. Get ready. It's coming to the extent of the, of the rest of the empire. Be prepared. So you have to be prepared that one day this persecution will come. This warfare is being brought to you in the physical realm that already exists in the spiritual. And we have to be prepared to respond against it. But, but it, it begs the question I said last week, how do you stand firm? If I'm supposed to stand firm to the end, what does that mean? Well, I gave you two things. One is to put on the whole armor of God, which we're going to get to here in a second in more detail. And the second, as I spent time last week, is praying at all times. And if you read that, the praying at all times is an assumed activity, right? It assumes that's just what you're going to be doing in this warfare. You're always going to be praying because that's what you've got to do. And I I think it'll help as we look why that's true because verse 10, look back there. We're supposed to do these two things, right? Put on the whole armor of God. And we're supposed to pray at all time. But look at verse 10 and how Paul starts the whole passage. Ephesians 6.10, finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Okay, you probably see it there on the page. Finally, you're getting to the end of the letter of the Ephesians. Paul's summing up. So one of the things is to realize what Paul is is doing here is he's summing up the entire book of Ephesians in, in its implications, Right? He's saying, okay, I've told you all these things. Now, finally, here's here's what I want you to, here's one of the things I want you to do with it. It's not only a summary of the second half of Ephesians. Like if you look at Ephesians, it kind of nicely divides into two halves. Chapters one through three, Paul's building the case, right? He's given us the ideas, what's called the indicatives, the realities we need to know. Then look at it, look at Ephesians 4, 1 and following. It's a bunch of imperatives, a bunch of commands. Do these things, do these things. Why? Because what I just told you in the first three chapters. Well, in verse in, in 4.1, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So what Paul is doing is, I think he's drawing up here at the end of Ephesians. Okay, let me tell you what it looks like. And one of the things you're going to have to do, a key part of it, to walk worthy of the gospel. You better know that you're in a war. Because attacks are coming. Or they're going on right now. And as you saw, as I mentioned last week, these are schemes, they're methodologies. Uh, I like how one interpret, this is uh, the wiles of the devil. How many of you remember Wiley Coyote? You remember Wiley Coyote, right? Here's wiles of the devil. The, the devil is, is intentionally making plans for attacks to bring about your, dis- your demise or guarantee it if you don't know Christ. That's what he's about. And Paul says, so you've got to know this, that you need to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. That's where he starts. You're in a war. You're going to need strength. So be strong in the Lord. Now, it sounds the way it reads that it's like, be strong in the Lord. Like, you go do something to be strong in the Lord. But the the verb is actually in the passive. Now, for those of you who may know Greek, it could be in what's called the middle I'm just going to, and you'll see here in a second, I'll argue, it's a passive verb. It's an imperative, but it, this is the way I, I think it is more helpful for us to understand, is be made strong in the Lord, right? It's not pull up your bootstraps and go get strong in the Lord. It's literally, you need to be made strong in the Lord. Or we might say, be strengthened in the Lord. Something is happening to us to strengthen us in the Lord and the power of his might. That's actually what's, what Paul is trying to describe to us. Is we have to be strengthened in some external way from ourselves to be in this war and this battle. That, that's what's got to happen. He says, be strong in the Lord. Interesting enough, if you look, what did we say this morning? This is why I think this verb is a passive, not a middle. Let me give you a middle real quick how it could. It could be be strong in the Lord yourselves. That's how you would interpret a middle. You would say, be the strong in the Lord yourselves, like it's somehow reciprocal. That's not what I think is going on. It's saying, you need to have something come outside of you make you strong in the Lord. 
Now, remember what we confessed this morning in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, it's not me who strengthens me, it's who? The Lord. Christ does. Paul actually does this in, in Timothy as he writes to Timothy. In both his letters, he makes reference to this idea. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I thank him, that is God, who has given me strength. And then he very specifically, which person of the Godhead? Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul references to Timothy, I thank our Lord, that he strengthens me. Then he writes again in 2 Timothy, likely the last letter that Paul ever wrote. And he writes in 2 Timothy to Timothy, you then my child, as in child of the, in the faith, you remember months ago we read in, in Acts about Ephesians and how Paul picked up Timothy in Asia Minor and brought him with him. You then my child, be strengthened, how? By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace by the unmerited favor that is in Christ. Meaning, you didn't earn it, you didn't build it, you didn't grasp it yourself, God did. My point being is that if you look at how Paul talks about this concept, we need Christ to strengthen us. That's what's got to happen if we're going to be effective in this war. So when we separate ourselves in such a way that we are not drawn on the, the strength of Christ, we have practices in our life, we get busy. Because remember, the, the devil has schemes in our life. And, and there's a lot of things that can draw us away from how Christ strengthens us. And so we begin to be given over to things in our life that will do anything but draw us to our Lord and be strengthened by Him. And you could probably think in your own lives, look, the demands of this world and the physical reality are tough, right? Most jobs, it's not a 40-hour work week, is it? No. Or if they tell you it's 20 hours, somehow you, you know, how many of you fit the 36-hour day into, 12, into 24? You do that? Right? I mean, it happens. Because it, it, the physical demands are tough, Right? I mean, and there's other things. I mean, I, I love, it's Marshall McLuhan, I think, who says, he wrote, when he wrote back in the 80s, we entertain ourselves to death. Okay, I, I don't, I have to, I literally looked at Dion yesterday, I said, remind me to cancel this streaming service. What? Because I got so many streaming services, I can't keep up with them, right? So now I, you know, yesterday, I, to watch a football game, I had to sign up for another one, right? So now I got another streaming service. Because I want to entertain myself with football, right? Okay, my defense, my son actually did it, and I, I, I used his login, but don't tell anybody. Anyway, so, but how many of you entertain yourselves to death? Right? I mean, TV, streaming media, social media, right? YouTube, video after video, TikTok, right? Instagram. Okay, for all of you who don't know that one, you'll know this one. Facebook, you know, you're on that one at least, right? In all seriousness, or we entertain ourselves with how we look at politics, and we get drawn into that. And now my hope is in who's going to be elected next. Let me give you a hint. It doesn't matter who gets elected next fall. They will not save our nation. They cannot do what only God can do. Do we understand that? And so... Listen to Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? This is actually 28 leading up to 31. You probably know 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power. Who gives power? He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even yous shall faint and be weary, 
and young men shall fall exhausted. But remember what he just said, but not our God. But they who do what? Wait. The actual word can be translated hope. Those who wait or hope for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. How do you get strengthened by God? Well, according to Isaiah, hope in him. Hope in your Lord. You see, the strengthening isn't that I do it. It's that I put my trust and faith fully in God. God, you can accomplish and win this war because I've already seen you do it on the cross. And so now, I am incapable of strengthening myself. Plead with your God. Strengthen me. I hope in you, not in the things of this world. And we've got to be strengthened for battle. But the word that comes from is our hope in God. So who strengthens us is clear. It is God. And the direct means he uses seems pretty clear. It's us hoping in him. It's putting our faith in him. It's our full trust. We're saying, I may not understand it. You're unsearchable in your depths. But I know you will strengthen me. And I trust the Spirit will work because our Lord said he would come and help us. And I trust that I will be strengthened by it so that I can stand firm in this battle. But how do we use this strength? What instruments or tools does he give us to stand firm in? And that's the, the latter part of the sermon today I want to finish in. Well, again, I said, we, we stand firm by what? Putting on the whole armor of God and praying at all times. And I talked last week about praying at all times. And so this instrument that he gives us, the other instrument is putting on the whole armor of God. Now look at, at what this instrument is. Okay, the, the goal here is we want to stand firm in the gospel to the end. God is strengthening us for the battle. Okay, God, what are the instruments of the warfare? I truly believe I'm in a spiritual battle. What are those instruments? How do I fight this fight? What do I arm up with? Well, see the words that he uses. In Ephesians 6, 13 through 17, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Love that word, whole armor. It's actually, it's the word armor with the word whole in front of it. Okay, that's a joke. You could read that. In the Greek, that's exactly what it is. It's the word armor or instrument, and then it puts the word pos in front of it. All the armor. That's what it's saying. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm, right? Again, stand firm to the end. You're in a battle. There are many of us, we're going to get to the end, and it's going to show. Don't make a mistake. Any of you that have had a fight in real battles, either yourselves or you've got friends, colleagues, people that you've fought with, not against, but in a war with, they come back, and there's some real physical injuries. Traumatic. Doesn't mean they can't stand firm to the end. It doesn't mean we won't experience suffering, right? It doesn't mean we won't experience real harm and hurt in our battle. We are in battle. But you can still stand firm to the end. Stand therefore having fastened on, and now here's the six pieces, do you see it? The belt of truth, and having put on the, the breastplate, of, breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So let's boil it down. Six, the six instruments of warfare, of, of battling in this war. One is truth. See that? Second is righteousness. Truth, righteousness. The third is the gospel. You see that? The gospel of peace. The fourth is faith. The fifth is salvation. And the sixth is the word of God. Truth, righteousness, gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. You see those six things? 
that there's your whole armor of God. Now, notice what he doesn't say, and we are given to. He doesn't say that our armament is based on the things that we would naturally want to use potentially. We don't use anger or violence. We don't use retribution, right? We, we don't use deceit. I mean, we can go back and look at the, at the works of the flesh out of Galatians, but just notice what, what Paul is saying is, when you talk about putting on the armor of God, this is what it looks like. Now, many of you may have heard sermons on this past and know the primary immediate reference the Ephesians would have been thinking about would have been a Roman foot soldier, right? So this is the helmet as they would have worn that comes down to cover their head, right? They would, have had a, they would have had a belt on here that you actually help hold together your uniform. Your breastplate, right, it's the defensive, so if someone strikes you, you have a chance of, of surviving an indirect sword strike, right? You're going to have, if you look at this, that the shield would have been the large shield. There was a smaller shield they could use in hand-to-hand -hand combat and sword, but notice it's to protect you from flaming darts. It's a large protective shield a foot soldier would have used to cover themselves so that when the inbound arrows come, they can absorb the arrows and not be hit by them. Because the idea was get it up higher, because you, if you got it higher, you could potentially hit them in the neck and shoulder area where it's a little weaker and, and, and hopefully take out a few soldiers as your archers launch those, right? And they would actually put pitch on them. There's a whole strategy to it. But they have this picture, and they, their, their shoes are like our modern-day cleats. They actually put nails in the bottom of them. Because I think, as I described last week, if you're standing together as a line, and by the way, you know, this is not nails. You see the bottom of my shoe? You could push me down the parking lot. I'd just slide right over the gravel because they're flat leather bottom shoes, right? Just push me. Put nails in the bottom of them. You grip into the soil. And now when you push, I can grip back and push back, right? That's what they did to their, 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 their boots. They were kind of a form of a sandal they would use to cover so they could grip the soil and push back to stand firm. This is the picture that's in their mind. But, but here's the deal. I want you to see this morning, and then I'm going to come back next week to talk about more about these six instruments, but I want you to see why it's called the armor, and notice the, the phrase, of God. Right? It is the armor that is given by God. It's the armor he uses. Because what Paul is also doing is saying, in these echoes and allusions to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to give you some verses here so you can see that it echoes this. These are the tools, the instruments of warfare in the spiritual realm that our God uses. And so these are the, 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 the instruments that we are to use in battle. The book of Isaiah, when you read through it, you begin to see references or allusions to various components of this battle armament. Okay? It's, it's not a perfect one-to-one, -one, you're going to see that, but you're going to see this echoed in Isaiah. And I think part of what Paul's doing here is saying, look, again, Paul tells us in his writings, one of the reasons the Old Testament is written is for our example and understanding, so we can understand how we are to live out under the lordship of, of the Messiah of Christ. And, he, and he, he, he writes, in, in Isaiah does in the Old Testament, and just notice, truth, in the belt of truth. In Isaiah 11, 5, Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 5, it says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. That word faithfulness can also be translated truth. The idea here is that you, he's carrying with him this belt about his waist. There's an armament that he carries. Like, I mean, when you read this, it's a messianic idea and the Messiah coming. This is what he's going to do. I would just point out to you, and you're going to see at the end, think about what our Lord does. I mean, he is the, the way, the truth, and the life, right? Not just what he does, who he is. But, but this whole idea that, that even in Isaiah, there's this idea of a belt around the waist of righteousness and faithfulness. And then the second one, righteousness, this breastplate, right, breast, I can't get the word out. It's like, I'm going to have to work on that word. Breastplate of righteousness in Isaiah 59, 17. 
it's, it's rather clear. It says that he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put garments of vengeance for his clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So you, you see here God, it, he's, he's arming himself, and, and here it is. But what is his battle gear? It's righteousness. It's salvation. Isaiah 11.5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Right? Or the gospel. Here is more of an illusion than a direct picture, but you may have, have heard this, remember, as Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. If you read the Greek translation, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings euangelion, who brings gospel. That's what gospel is, it's good news who publishes peace, that gospel of peace, who brings good news, gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion. Do you notice what the gospel is here in Isaiah? Your God reigns. The good news is God reigns. Not all these other things that you see and you think reign. Or if you go on and look at faith in Isaiah eleven five again, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You may remember faith is talked about as a shield in the Old Testament like Paul uses it here. Genesis 15, 1, do you remember what God told Abram? He actually tells Abram, he says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Where's faith placed? In God. Why? The gospel, the good news is he reigns. He's God. You want to be defended against things? Put your faith in him. Psalm 18.2, and I could point to Proverbs as well, but Psalm 18.2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, and whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. You see, even in the, in the Old Testament, faith is that which protects us from the attacks of the devil or the helmet of salvation in Isaiah 59 17 as you already read that it is a helmet of salvation on his head or the last instrument the word of God which is the sword of the spirit Paul says in Isaiah 11 4 but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth he shall strike the earth with what? The rod of his mouth. How did God create everything? He spoke it into existence. How can God destroy everything? He can speak it out of existence. He can destroy it with his very words. This is why when talked about later in Revelation 19 in verse 15, the Messiah is spoken of in this way as well. He's the one who's, who can destroy, exercise judgment with the words of his mouth. Hebrews 4.12, you probably know, the word of God is what? Sharper than any two-edged sword, splitting to the very division of soul and spirit, spirit of bone and marrow. Right? It speaks of the word of God that way. Or we also look at Revelation 2.16, where it says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the what? The sword of my mouth. Do you see the reason why the armor of God, the full armor of God is referenced in these six things is because these are the instruments of our God himself. These are the weapons that God gives us. And what I want us to understand today is this, that we cannot fight a spiritual war with unspiritual weapons. We must understand that the weapons of our warfare, the true war we're in, are these six things. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. Now, realizing that we're in a war, 
This is what I want us to walk out of here this morning and take hold of. And then we can come back next week and talk more about what does it mean to actually put this armor on. Because this armor is these six things, and it's meant so that we can stand firm to the end. Stand firm in the gospel. I want us to remember this. Be strong in the Lord and stand firm in the gospel by putting on in our minds and hearts the full armor of God. I want you to think for a second and remember what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. We are transformed how? By the renewing of our mind. God uses these things to transform our mind, to conform our hearts, to make us into the image of our Lord so that he be glorified. Because this is how he fights the battle, is he uses these things. So this morning as we leave, I want you to leave here thinking, Lord, make me strong in you. Be strong in the Lord so that I might stand firm in the gospel by putting on in my mind and heart the full armor of God. This is what we'll leave with a thought for this week, and next week we'll come and consider these six instruments together in more detail. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you strengthen us. God, we know that our own abilities will never bring about the strength that is needed to fight a spiritual war. And so God, we pray work in our lives. May the Spirit work in us in such a way that He brings the true strength of Christ into our lives in such a way that we will stand firm to the end. God, we believe You will do this because we are in Christ. That God is a sovereign God who, who as Paul said in the beginning of Ephesians, chose us for His great grace or glorious grace, that you chose us to glorify yourself. God, we believe that you will strengthen us for your glory and for our good. And so, God, I pray, would you strengthen us more and more for your glory and for our good? And God, would you help us? Father, because we know left to, our, left to ourselves, we would not stand firm in the gospel. But because of your transforming work in our lives, that we stand firm. And so God, we pray, continue to strengthen us so that we might use these weapons that you have so generously and graciously given to us that we would stand firm in the gospel to the end so that you would be praised for your glorious grace. God, may we be a people individually and collectively who does this so that you be glorified by us so that others would be drawn to our Messiah, to Christ, Jesus our Lord. And Father, that in using all those things, we, we, are, we are thankful and glorify you because it is for our great good as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.